If you would open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 15, I know it says chapter 16 in the bulletins that you looked at this morning, but uh, we're going to cheat and back up a little bit um, because it struck me this week as I was looking at these two kings, how well they go together. Um, Last week we looked at seven kings in quick succession, and so I told you there'd be no quiz, so I'll honor my word on that. But I thought because of that, they kind of blended together. And I wanted to take out the last one, Jotham, and, and wrap him into chapter 16 for us tonight. So I want to tell you thank you all for, for being here. Uh, thanks for uh, being a faithful part of our church and for worshiping with us on Sunday evenings. I know the world is, is busy and there's a lot going on. And so I'm grateful that you uh, come back. You know, it's not just Sunday evenings, but Sunday mornings, what we do here at church is a mystery to the, the outside world. You know, they're driving by at 45 or 75 miles an hour on Braddock right there. Um, and it's just a mystery to them that there's people that, you know, aren't on their way to the movies or to golf or whatever people do on Sundays. Uh, they're not on their way to go watch, was it a baseball game tonight or something? Um, <laughs> But they, they come to sing songs to, to a God who's not physically in the room. And they come to open up a book and, uh, and learn. And it's a book about kings who reigned 2,500 years ago, 600 years ago. We're not even talking about Roman history. We're going back even further than that. And that we, you know, fill a room with people that want to come and study those kings. It's not like I've ambushed you with this. Like, oh wait, second kings? Hold on. I got to take a phone call. No, you know what's coming. And yet you set aside what's going on in your life to be here and worship together and study God's word together. And so it's a joy for me to be around people like that. I'm encouraged by that. Tonight as we look at this passage, it reminds me of a story about, I don't know, seven years ago in Ontario, California. Uh, there's a big train yard out there, a massive train yard. All the kind of all the freeways in LA, as they they leave out by Palm Springs, they funnel by this train yard. So it's kind of a well-known train yard there. But there was a massive lumber train that was being parked, and uh, it had been parked hours earlier. In fact, in the uh, middle of the night, but it had been left there. And over the course of the night, I guess there was winds or whatever, and the train started to move. And the the yard was filled with people. I mean, it's a crazy train yard. It's you know it's like it's as busy as Grand Central Station, except with freight instead of people. And so people are noticing the train starting to move, but once the train is moving quick enough to be noticed, like let's just say two miles an hour, at that point, it's, you can't stop it, right? I mean, how do you, you can't, it's not like get your friends there and line up in front of the train and stop it. You can't stop. It was a train filled with lumber. And so they had different ideas about chasing it down with a, a locomotive and like hooking the locomotive to it. But, uh, I mean, would you want to be the driver that does that? I mean, like, that's the kind of thing that would look good in the movies, but in real life, not so much. I mean, you, you hit a train, what if it doesn't hook? You'll probably get derailed yourself. I mean, you would probably die, and Denzel Washington would be up to the task, but not, not like actual train engineers. And so it just starts going. And it's just, it's going so slowly. Uh, and there's all kinds of videos that people made of it crossing train crossings. And uh, it's, you know, it's on the news and everything. People are gathered out there watching, recording this train going by now at like 10 miles an hour on their cell phones. 
as it's just creeping through the intersections. And you know, the Inland Empire in LA, it funnels down towards the, the ocean. That's the way the topography works. And so it keeps picking up speed. And throughout the day, it's, you know, it's now on TV and such. And what are you going to do with a train that by the end of the day was going 60 miles an hour um, through Los Angeles? And so what the, the train company did is they put it on a spur that would dead end um, in a neighborhood. Uh, it was one of the spurs that goes through, like, yeah, I guess they had built it to bring lumber to build the houses, and it hadn't been used in decades. And so they directed, because they could steer it, you know, they could steer it track to track, and so they directed it that way. Now, they chose a neighborhood intentionally because they decided that nobody would be home, and everybody is going to be at school. If you're going to crash a train, a freight train, at 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, in Los Angeles, where are you going to do it? And so they decided in a neighborhood, that's your best chance. Uh, now, nobody went door to door. <laughs> like there was, they should have like, done announcements, but I don't think the police knew exactly where it was headed. Only the train company did, and they didn't you know, call 911. Hey, I'm about to crash a train. Uh, it just happened. And uh, amazingly, nobody was hurt. I mean, this entire train derailed into a neighborhood. There's just phenomenal, don't look at them on your phone now, but there's phenomenal videos of this happening. Uh, it looked like a, a like a train crash is what it looked like because it was a train crash. And it finally crashed at 70 miles an hour, covered a whole block of houses with lumber, and uh, nobody was home. That is what I think of when I read 2 Kings 16. <laughs> what we see tonight is a bit of the train crash here. The train has been picking up speed ever since Solomon Ever since Solomon died, really, after his death, you had uh, Jeroboam came after him in Israel, Rehoboam came after him in Judah after the Civil War, and that's where the train starts to leave the yard. And the whole book of First and Second Kings has been this train increasing speed, increasing speed, increasing speed. And it's kind of the question now, where are you going to crash this thing? We've been talking all along about how, do you, how does God faithful to both of his promises in this book, how is God faithful to both of his promises in scripture here, that God is going to protect Israel and he's going to preserve Israel. At the same time, he's going to punish them if they go against, against him. If they stop worshiping Yahweh, God will stop defending them. And so at this point, you're wondering how can both of these things be true? How can God protect them while, how, while also punishing them? And I, I've said it this way. This is the age-old question of how can God be both just and the justifier. How can God be holy and at the same time the one who pardons sinners? That's the question. And that book, this book, Second Kings, will resolve that by the end of the book. Well, tonight we see this train crash and it begins with this concept of worldliness. That's what I've called the sermon tonight. And we're going to look at two kings tonight, just two, Jotham and Ahaz. Jotham at the end of chapter 15. Ahaz, which is all of chapter 16, is his story. And the key thread between both of them is this thread of worldliness. Let me define worldliness for you. Here's a, a description of it from C.J. Mahaney. He, has a, uh, he used to pastor up in Maryland nearby, and he has an excellent book. I think it's called Worldliness on uh, the Danger of Loving the World. And this is how he defines, he wrote the book on worldliness, and this is how he defines it. It's, quote, loving the organized system of a world of arrogant, self-sufficient people, seeking to exist apart from God and living in opposition to Him. And that line at the end there is, who said it? C.J. Mahaney. I'm not saying C.J. Mahaney is the worldliness kind of person. It's just 
the one who gives us the definition. And I like that, the way he describes it there. It's loving the organized system. This is a complex concept to define because people stumble over this. I go on a nature walk. Does that count as worldliness? What's more worldly than the world itself? Or I like reading Shakespeare. Does that count as worldliness? So I like this definition because it cuts through all that and gets right to the heart issue. We live in a world that is dominated by a system run by arrogant and self-sufficient people who are seeking to establish their own lives and their own existence and their own significance while living in opposition to God. It's people that are in rebellion against God and they're not rebelling against God passively but actively and while doing that, they're developing a whole culture around them. Worldliness is loving that culture. Loving that system that they've designed. You know, you can say it this way. It's the difference between loving snow and loving movies. Snow is not part of a system designed to rebel against God. But movies are. And it's, it's a pretty, I think, black and white description there. It's wrong to love things in the world that are produced by those in the world to justify their self-sufficiency against God. Now, when you love the things in the world, you're gratifying and exalting yourself to the exclusion of God. Let me say that sentence again. When you love the things in the world, you're gratifying and exalting yourself to the exclusion of God. Worldliness, then, is a disease. It's caused by the love of the world. It progresses by causing you to conform yourself to the world rather than to the Lord. That's the way this disease works. It's not a disease you catch from a virus or from drinking out of somebody else's cup. It is a disease that you catch by love for the world. And how this disease works itself out in your life is it progresses by causing you to conform yourself to that world system. That's, that's the danger of this disease. You become a conformist rather than conforming yourself to the Lord. You know, the point of being a Christian is that you're built up into the image of Christ. Worldliness doesn't build you up in the image of Christ. It builds you up into the image of the world. Now, in severe cases of worldliness, it ends in depression, senseless acts of disqualifying sin, even suicide. But that's not the normal way this disease works. The normal way this disease works is it results in just a numb life. It results in a cold heart. It results in a life that exists apart from reading God's Word. It results in a life that exists without witnessing, without evangelism, without any of the spiritual things that you used to love. It results in a life where you look just like everybody else in the world. (laughs) That's the typical way this disease works. Again, There are severe cases of worldliness, severe severe cases of this disease make people do insane things and ridiculous kinds of sin. But that's not the normal way this works. The normal way is it turns your life into looking just like everybody else's life, except maybe for where you are on Sundays. The root of this issue is internal. It's not environmental. You don't protect yourself from worldliness by being in a in a glass bubble, so to speak, because it's caused by things inside of you, not by things outside of you. Things that you don't see, things that you see are not what creates worldliness in you. 
Things that happen around you in the world don't cause worldliness. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm not telling you to remove yourself physically from the world because there's, there's no point of that. You can't do it. Worldliness is not caught from the outside. Worldliness is internal. It's seen in the things that you love. You can tell a lot about a person by the things that they delight in. I've often said this. It's probably the phrase I've said more in my preaching than any other phrase. But the measure of a person is the depth of the things in which they love. You can define a person. What kind of person are you? You can tell by the kind of things that you love. That's what makes a man. So you can ask yourself, what gives you joy? What brings you delight in this world? That's what defines you. Your fingerprints don't make you who you are. Your hair color doesn't make you who you are. What makes you who you are are the things that you love. That's where you derive your identity from. And like I said, that's internal. That's what dominates your mind, that dominates your affections, that's what drives you, the kind of things that you long for. It's not external. And that's what is difficult for some Christians to understand about worldliness. They define worldliness in exclusionary terms about things that are outside of them, the kind of movies you watch, the kind of music you listen to. But those are not the measure of worldliness. The measure of worldliness is what is in your heart. There's obviously wisdom issues about watching ungodly things and listening to ungodly things. But that is the fruit, not the root. The root is the things that you love. And there's two different ways to diagnose worldliness. That's what we're going to see in these two kings. That'll be our outline tonight. Two different ways to diagnose worldliness. The first way. Worldliness is seen in compromise. Worldliness is seen in compromise. And this is where we jump in with King Jotham. He's at the end of 2 Kings 15. Worldliness is seen in compromise. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh according to all that his father Uzziah had done. And remember, that is a very low standard. When, when you see that line in 2 Kings, he did right in the eyes of the Lord. That seems good until let's get the follow-on phrase according to what his father did. Well, I mean, that's easy enough to do. Let's find what the measuring line is. Oh, in this case, the measuring line is a king who God struck with leprosy because of his sinful, arrogant, idolatrous pride and lived out the rest of his life banished from the capital city. That's who his father was. So he was a good enough king, I guess. This is the prophet's kind of nonchalant way of saying, hey, it's good enough for Judah, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's not like he was godly or anything, but he was just as good as his father was, the one who was struck by leprosy and died down by the river. Nevertheless, verse 35 quickly adds, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. Now, he did do this. Look at this. He rebuilt the upper gate of Yahweh's house. That's a nice touch, huh? A little renovation at the temple. Shined up the gate. Thanks, king. I mean, come on. It's kind of a silly thing. I mean, that's your measure of godliness? Yeah. He didn't deal with the idol worship in Israel. He didn't take down the high places. He didn't confront the idol worship that was so tolerated. He didn't do any of that, but man, he made, it, he made kind of a nice, nice little doorway there to come in. Yeah. I see Steve Holly looking at the atrium. It's a nice place to worship, huh? You know, it's silly. 
not the atrium, but that kind of measure of godliness is silly. And even if you were to apply it to our own building, just imagine how silly it would be. Oh, that person's so godly, they designed the atrium. I mean, thanks. Not quite the measure of godliness Scripture holds out for you, is it? But that was this king. That's the highlight of his religiosity. Those around him are worshiping idols. He designed a nice gate. Now the rest of what he did, all, aren't they written in the book of Chronicles, Kings of Judah? In those days, Yahweh began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. Jotham slept with his fathers, was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. I mean, like I said, Jotham's a decent enough guy. But there's ominous signs in his life. He demonstrates this lesson about holiness. Holiness is exclusive. Jotham was trying to imitate his father's successes. His father was very successful in military uh, in military victories, we talked about that last week. Jotham was trying to imitate that, but he wasn't doing so to the exclusion of the world around him. He was embracing the idols that the people in the other nations embraced, just like his father did. His father grew proud and thought he could be king and priest like the other kings the other nations were, was struck by God. Jotham is following in his dad's footsteps. He tries to lead a godly life. He tries to follow God's commands, but not enough to actually tear down idols. That's our warning sign interworldliness, stage right. Rather than tear down the high places, he decides to lure people away from them. And you get this filled in, you don't need to flip there, but Second Chronicles 27 fills in the dots here. Jotham's motivation in, tr- in building the gate was to try to lure the Israelites back to the temple away from the high places. See the strategy? He looks around and says, oh, the Israelites are worshiping at these, these high places. I know... Let's get a neater gate in the temple. That'll cure them of idol worship. Then they'll come and worship the true God because they'll look at the gate. That was the plan. Now, did it work? Well, 2 Chronicles 27 verse 2 says no. In fact, it says the people lived in, I'm quoting here, quote, very corruptly during his reign. (laughs) The people, not only did it not work, they excelled in their immorality. And they excelled in their immorality. Unless you roll your eyes in such a, a silly way at those, you know, people in the ancient Near East who thought you could lure people away from pagan religion by shiny gates. I mean, I understand that same concept is prevalent in our culture at this very moment, isn't it? I mean, it's a common thing I've heard people say. You know, we're going to switch from this church and go to the other church over there because my kids are in high school now and that other church, they have, they have cool music. And I'm so afraid of losing my kids to the world that I'm going to go to this church where they have cool music. And that'll keep my kids in church. That's their, I, I've had parents tell me this. We're going to go, this church has cool music and that'll keep my kids in church. That's the plan. What kind of church is it? Well, I don't really know. What's their doctrine like? I think it's like a Church of Christ kind of church. Which, I mean... It's not a cult or anything, but it's definitely not cool to leave a Bible-teaching church for that. But man, they have rockin' music. And you should see the coffee bar they have in the back of the worship center. It is lit. (laughs) Certainly my kids will follow Jesus with the guitar solos and a latte. That is Jotham. That is his reign right there. That's his reign. The motivation is probably pure enough. I don't want to lose my kids to the world. 
I don't want to lose my kids to the world with enough intensity to actually instruct them or catechize them or teach them doctrine or teach them theology or confront the sin going on in their life. But I do want to protect them enough to get them hipper music, to get them a nice gate. Well, Jotham made Judah rich, and he expanded on Israel's riches, on his father's successes, but he did not take public stands against sin. He allowed his people to worship as they pleased. Silver and gold and a better gate to the temple were not enough to get the Judeans to lead their idols. And so they drifted away. D.A. Carson says this, quote, people do not drift towards holiness. They don't gravitate towards godliness, prayer, and obedience. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. Left on their own, that's what's happened. Things fall down. They don't fall up. Things tend towards compromise. They tend towards tolerance. They tend towards superstition. But really what that is, is disobedience. It's not faith. It's not faith. The very most is Jotham kind of faith. And hey, again, let's not be too harsh on Jotham. It was good enough for his dad, wasn't it? So it's got to be good enough for him. But remember that his dad died as a leper, banished from society. But you've seen the progression, aren't you? The worldliness sets in with the father, and now it's a bad case in the son. Wait until you get a load of the grandson. Second point, worldliness is seen in conformity. It's not just seen in compromise, but it's seen in conformity. And here's where we meet King Ahaz. Ahaz, by the way, before you read 2 Kings 16, Ahaz was the Judas of Judah. He was the betrayer of his people. Arguably the worst king in Judah's history. Well, the worst king to date in Judah's history. We'll meet Manasseh in a couple weeks. But for now, he's the worst king that Israel has ever had. Let's see what made him so awful. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh his God, as his father David has done. So do you notice the, the it's not progression, although it is moving in the wrong way, the regression here. Before, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Then later you would get, oh, he did what was right, kind of like his dad. And now you get, no, this guy's just awful. <laughs> it's just awful. He's not even Jotham good. He did what was right, not like in the eyes of Yahweh, but in his own eyes. Verse 3, he walked in the ways of the king of Israel. That's not a compliment. It's like the worst thing you could say about somebody right there. Oh man, that guy's so awful. He's like a king of Israel. Remember, there's a difference between Judah and Israel, and Judah is where the line of David is. That's who we're talking about. Ahaz reigned in Judah. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. And, you know, what we learned in history is this was an actual sacrifice. We saw this earlier in 2 Kings chapter 2 with the king of Edom doing it. But you would take your son or you would burn him, and you would build their ashes, their bones, into your house. Remember what the king of Edom did is he dumped the bones over the wall. He dumped the ashes over the wall to ward off the Israelites, and it worked. But what most of the nations would do is they'd build them into their house. So you're literally building their house on the death, on the sacrifice of their firstborn. It was a way of demonstrating their extreme devotion to their, to their gods. 
Well, this is what Ahaz did. It's despicable, the Scripture says. Despicable practice of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. Now, again, very easy to pick on those pagans, but we see this sin alive and well in our own culture today where people will sacrifice their children on the altar of convenience. Normally the firstborn child on the altar of convenience because they're not ready in life for that kind of commitment yet. It's the same kind of thing. He sacrificed and made offerings, verse 4, on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but couldn't conquer him. So he's being attacked now by the Israelites. Again, notice the regression here. His parents didn't get rid of the high places, but didn't worship it. His grandparents didn't get rid of the high places, just didn't worship at them. Jotham doesn't get rid of the high places. He doesn't worship at them either, but he just kind of worships around them. Well, now the grandson full on worshiping them. But it's not just enough that he's sacrificing his kids and worshiping in the high places. He's going to become an absolute sellout here. He's now attacked by the Syrians. He's attacked by the king of Israel. So he's got these two massive nations coming at him. They're attacking him. But notice it says at the end of verse 5, they could not conquer him. So he's standing strong. He's actually holding the city of David against these two massive nations. Now at that time, Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Eliath for Syria and drove the men of Judah away from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers. He's holding on to the capital, but he's losing some of the, the territory, if you could say it that way. He's holding Florida. He just lost Puerto Rico. <laughs> so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath, Pilliser, the king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant, your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Now, he's actually holding his own defenses here. Like I say, he's just losing the territories, but he doesn't have confidence that God is going to help him. He doesn't recognize that God is causing him to lose because of his own compromises and his sins. He's not humbling himself before Yahweh. Instead, he's asking the Syrians to bail him out. I mean, this shows such an ignorance of Israelite history. They were rescued from the hands of the Egyptians and led into the promised land, not by the Syrians, but by Yahweh. But he doesn't trust that. He doesn't believe that. Those are fairy tales from the bygone era, Ahaz would say. But the Syrians, they're around now. So he asks them for help. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of Yahweh and the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria listened to him, or more likely listened to the silver and gold. And remember, we talked about this approach last time. I mean, what are you afraid of, what are you afraid of losing? I mean, why would you give your gold and silver away to keep yourself from getting plundered? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And the analogy I gave you, I think, two weeks ago was it's like going away on vacation and paying the burglar by letting the burglar take whatever he wants from your house to watch it while you're gone. I mean, I guess at least the curiosity is removed. <laughs> you know it's going to be gone. But that's what he does. He gives the gold and silver away. It's, I mean, it's God's gold and silver, not his. So who cares if he takes it? I think is his attitude. Well, verse 9, the king of Assyria listened to the gold and silver. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it. He conquered, the king of Assyria conquered the Syrians, carrying his people captive to Kerr, and he called it, and he killed Rezin. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgoth Pilsar, king of Assyria, he saw, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. 
So King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar, its pattern and exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all the king of Ahaz has sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. I mean, did you follow that? He, go, he bribes some other nation to rescue him. That other nation conquers Damascus. He goes and visits Damascus and sees the altar of the conquered nation and thinks that's pretty neat. You know where that would look really good? In Solomon's temple. I mean, we're not using it anyway. Let's bring in a, a sweet altar there. I mean, how cool would it be to have an altar just like the Syrians have? So let's build it. He drops it down and sends it, and guess, who does it? guess who's the lead construction manager? Who leads the building committee in this? The high priest! Are you kidding me? Well, when the king came from Damascus... The king viewed the altar. So now the king from Damascus comes, sees the altar. The king drew near in the altar, to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offerings and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. The bronze altar that was before Yahweh, he removed from the house, in front of the house and from the place between the altar and the house of Yahweh and he put it on the north side of his altar. So catch what he's doing here. He's doing the Israelite sacrifices. The blood sacrifices is commanded in Leviticus. He's doing that to the altar of the Syrians with the Syrian king. I mean, this is like, this is that, you know, tolerance bumper sticker. It's got all the religious icons around it. I mean, they, they're, even the Star of David would be on this one. They're even doing the Jewish sacrifice on the Syrian altar with the Assyrian king what a mess. The only thing missing from this scene is anybody who actually loves Yahweh. It's the one thing missing. It doesn't concern anybody, though. In fact, they move the main altar, the one for the, for the uh, day of Yom Kippur. They move that out of the way. And what's that thing doing there? It's just getting in the way. Messing up the ambiance here, the feng shui, with all the Yahweh worship. So verse 15, King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, on this great altar, burn the morning offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offerings and their drink offerings and throw it all in the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. What does it mean to inquire by an altar? Well, he's going to slaughter a pig. This is what they did back then, which is a no-no for the Jews for you know, a lot of reasons, namely the book of Leviticus being one of them, and you take the pig entrails, the pig intestines, and you throw them on this bronze altar and you read the future by the, the pig guts. That's what he's doing in Yahweh's temple. Uriah, the priest, verse 16, did all this just as Ahaz commanded. You know, when you seek first the kingdom of God, everything else is taken care of. But when you seek everything else first, the pagans take better care of you because God won't. That's what he's found. Since he's not caring for God, God's not caring for him. But he's a swimming relationship with the king of Assyria. Verse 17, King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them. He took down the sea from the bronze oxen, oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. So pause here. The stands, the ox, and the sea. You may not have this fresh in your mind, but recall, if you will, back in 1 Kings chapter 8, we spent a long time talking about the sea. In fact, many of you fell asleep, and it was a long chapter, and I said, remember the sea, because you're going to see it again. 
And we talked about how the Mormons build an identical one in their temple. They model the one in their temple off of this. The Jews had one well, and had one. But what I mean is that they moved it. He, it's a huge, massive bowl with oxen backed up onto each other for the purifications in the temple. He gets rid of that. It's not enough that he ditched the temple and he's slaughtering pigs in there. He moves the sea that took practically a chapter to describe. And remember, initially, 1 Kings and 2 Kings weren't two different books. They were one book. And so there's been a whole bunch of this book already written about the sea. And now it just is gone in a paragraph, gone in a sentence, really. Tore it down. Verse 18, the covered way of the Sabbath that had been built inside the house to the outer entrance of the king and he used to go around the house of Yahweh because of the king of Syria. He gets rid of that. This is the pathway, secret pathway. It's described uh, earlier in the book. I, I don't see the exact verse in my notes. First Kings 10, I don't have the verse number written down, where the king would go from his, his house into the temple on the Sabbath. He had his own little passageway so he could worship Yahweh in the temple on the Sabbath like the king was supposed to. He had that built. Well, this king gets rid of that pathway. Imagine that. He stumbles across the door to the worship center. He's like, where does this go? Who would use that? <laughs> Can't we put this for storage or something here? Come on. Well, verse 19, the rest of the acts of Ahaz and all that he did, aren't they written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Your two warnings of worldliness. First, compromise. When you start not dealing with the hard issues, I love what Pastor Charles said this morning that, you know, in a sense, it's good to be offensive for Jesus. You know, people in the world are offended by everything, so you may as well let them be offended by the right thing. It's good to be confronted of sin. I mean, what a warning sign in your life when you're no longer known as the person who speaks out against sin. When you're not marked as the person who has the habit of confronting people who are lost in sin. And that's what you see missing with Jotham. He's willing to tolerate the sin around him. He's willing to embrace it. He's willing to even use it for his advantage. It's not that he himself would worship idols. Of course not. But it's not like he's opposed to it either. And that's the train moving at 30 miles an hour right there. What it looks like at 70 miles an hour is Ahaz, who is full-blown worshiping the idols. I mean, why wouldn't he? It's not like he's ever had a convincing case not to. Why wouldn't he? put bricks in front of the door into the temple? Why wouldn't he sacrifice a pig and read the entrails in the temple? I mean, what's to stop him? It's not like he cares about God or God's word or he has people confronting him in his life. Of course not. Now he's in full-on conformity mode. He's making his life look just like the nations around him. And that's the way conformity works. And it gets marketed as a virtue too, by the way. It's considered virtuous. The more you blend in with those around you, that's virtuous in this mindset. It's virtuous. It was J. Paul Getty who said the best things in life are things. <laughs> and that's exactly what Ahaz believed. The best things in his life could be the things that the other nations have. More of them, the better. Let's look like them. You know, it's been said in the early, the early church, feared heresy more than martyrdom. Ahaz is this on, on its head. Ahaz will sell out to heretical gods, will perform heretical worship, for the sake of his own peace and for the sake of some minor military battle that he'll win. He fundamentally alters the way people worship God. And these two things are still true today, as I think I've explained already in our culture. There's the temptation for compromise. 
There's the temptation to say, you know, I want to be more like the world. I want to look more like the world. And then there's the temptation of conformity, where it's not just, oh, wouldn't that be neat, but the actually blending in. And of course, I think I made it clear at the beginning, this is not about music styles. It's not about dress styles. It's not about those kind of superficial things. It's about the world systems that are advanced by those that know not the Lord, and it's about your desire to emulate them, to love them. With Ahaz, it starts with political compromises and then goes to religious compromises and then ends the train crash in his life is where there's no worship of Yahweh at all. This is the progression that's behind this New Testament warning. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world, the Scripture says. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And that is the key distinction right there. You know, don't get caught up on the, the, you know, the music styles or whatnot. The key distinction is right there. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of the possessions, they're not from the Father, but they're from the world. That's the great gulf right there. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, who is the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Worldliness comes from things in the world that are not from God. They're developed and designed by the hearts that are in love with the world. It's not from the Father, but the world. And the world is passing away. So what's the danger of loving things that the world loves? Because the world's dying. That's the danger. Compromise entered stage right. This world will exit stage left. It will go away. And if you love the things in the world, so will you. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, John says. Unless you think these sad tales of woe are reserved for the Old Testament, the New Testament has them as well. I mean, I think of Demas, one of Paul's closest associates as you go through the book of Acts. He was his assistant. He traveled with Paul throughout the empire on all of Paul's missionary journeys, but then something happened, and we don't know exactly what happened, but something went down. He didn't make one trip, then he didn't make another trip, and then another. And at the end of Paul's life, some of his last words... He writes to Timothy and says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That's the progression. When a person deserts the church, they're deserting a Savior. Before Demas deserted, he drifted. It begins with a dull conscience and a listless soul. Your affections grow dim. And then you've gone away. It's the boat that was cut and just drifted over time. It's the train that was parked and just slowly started to creep. And then one day the guy comes out and it's just gone. That's what worldliness does. And I know, by the way, I'm not preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to night church on Super Bowl Sunday. It's like the choir. But mark this. I mean, nobody is immune to this. Mark this. Build the Ebenezer in your heart. Mark the stones about where your affections are for the Lord now so that you can gauge this in your life, so that you can see drifting in your life. Because when you entertain the things in the world, when you love the things in the world, that's where the drifting comes. And over time, it does not end with you being devoted to the church and the teaching of God's word and the singing to God's, with God's people and the praying to our glorious God. That's, that's not where this ends. When you love the world, it drifts away from that kind of thing. It drifts away. Why is worldliness so sinful? Worldliness simply. Worldliness is so sinful 
because Christ is so glorious. So how do you combat worldliness in your life? I mean, the way worldliness works is by dulling your affections, by getting you to read the word less, by stifling evangelism, by getting you complacent, by making your life look like everybody else's life in the world. I mean, that's, remember, that's what I said. That's the typical way this works. And people embrace it because they learn to think that's good. Right? They want to fit in. They want their lives to look like everybody else's life. They want to fit in. That's how worldliness, the fertile seed of worldliness is. Can't I just be like other people? So how do you combat it? How do you combat worldliness? Well, you reflect on the majesty of Christ. You fill your heart and you fill your affections with the glory of Christ. Because let me tell you what Christ did not do. <laughs> he did not fit in, right? <laughs> it's not just that Christ didn't love the things in the world which he didn't, but it's that he didn't fit in. And it's even more than that. He didn't make fitting in a virtue. He didn't make looking like the other nations, acting like the other nations. He didn't make that virtuous. You turn your mind away from the world and you think about God. You replace your love of box scores and contemporary news with the love of old news, 2,000-year-old news. And you take joy not from the world system opposed to Christ, but from the Christ who is opposed to the world system. And you remember that man's greatest need is forgiveness and man's greatest love is the forgiver. Worldliness is so evil not because it's so bad in and of itself but because it's so bland. Worldliness is so wicked because it offers so little. It's so poisonous because it's so tasteless. And it is that blandness that leads to badness. The drifting into worldliness starts innocently enough, blandly enough, but it leads to the desire for actual badness on its own. What a contrast with the heart that's set in Christ. Because the heart that's set in Christ does not suffer from blandness, does not suffer from tastelessness, does not lead towards moral impurity. But the heart that's set on Christ grows in love for Christ, grows in the delight in Christ, and it leads towards moral goodness. And you could say it this way. It leads to goodness that leads to glory. Worldliness leads to badness that leads to, you know, the dreary, bland life. But a life that is fixed on Christ leads to goodness, which leads to glory. Ahaz slept with his fathers, was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And what a contrast, of course, with Christ, who did not sleep with his fathers, who was not permanently buried in the city of David, but reigns to this day, making intercession for us. If you see the signs, the warning signs of worldliness in your heart, if you see the drifting beginning in your heart, confess that to the Lord and ask the Lord to build an anchor in your heart in your affections for Christ. Because when you're anchored in the glory of Christ, the drifting stops. The brake is put on the train. You can't stop a runaway train, but you can stop a runaway heart. And you do it by turning and trusting our Savior. Lord, we're thankful that you have been good to us. You've been good to us by giving us warnings like Jotham and Ahaz. You've been good to us by giving us the fellowship of this room and friendship of these people. So Lord, I pray that we would provoke one another towards godliness as long as it's called today. That we would do good deeds 
and we would be found worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't know the Demases in this room or in this church or in our lives, but you do. We pray that you would anchor us so that we would not be like him. That we wouldn't tend to drift, we would tend towards you. We would fight towards you. We know the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence. As you take it, take it with force. And that's our desire, Lord, to lay hold of you with an earnestness, to grow in our love for you, to be fervent in prayer. Not because by praying and by acting we earn your love, of course not, but by praying and by acting we lay hold of it. Lord, we want to hold on. We want the grace of God to compel us to love and good deeds. We want, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the grace of God to control us, to direct us. We want, as he says in Titus 2, the grace of God to instruct us to lead lives worthy of the calling of Christ. We're thankful for the love that you've shown us. I pray that you would do that tonight. If we have sins, Lord, we confess them to you. We know that you're faithful and just to forgive us. As we go this week, Lord, use us as we walk into this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.